Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Friday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is April 24th. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I'm doing uh, good. Got, good. Got, uh, you know, ready for the weekend. Ready for the weekend, as if that's any different from the five days that preceded it. A little different. A little different, it is. There's a little little relief that still comes from the weekend arriving. What's up with uh, you? Not much. Not much. We're recording this early Thursday. We just Before got the Browns draft. We are recording. Hey, yeah, that's going to be weird. Who would you draft of a modern player, PGA Tour player? Say you're doing a backyard game, tackle football, not to actually play against NFL players. You're going 11 on 11, real tackle football in a stadium. Who would you like most? Who would you pick first out of current PGA Tour players? Is Chris Patton an option? The beefy. <laughs> <laughs> A real current PGA Tour player, not to drop Brooksy into you know tackle you know Saquon Barkley. I'm talking about like actual tackle football game. Who would be good? The thick I think, boy. I think John Rahm would be sneaky good. He's got some. Think, he's got some aggression in him. That's a good one. Gary Woodland, obviously. I think Phil could be a good court. I mean, Phil has a live arm, as they say in the scouting trade. Is a quote that may have any meaning or may have no meaning. Phil, Phil has a cannon. He can rip it. Yeah, uh, he can. I, I, not that he'd be, you know, we're talking playing against other schlubs, but. Uh, I definitely wouldn't take Tiger. Would you take? No. <laughs> His back would go out. I know. Run a route. Can you imagine? Can you imagine maybe Abe answer running routes, running like a 10 yard out? Definitely not Jonathan Vegas. He looked winded on that that sprint after about twenty paces. Winding his arms, yeah. Scott Stallings, a little bit of a beast now. He might be good. All right, I think that's a fun, fun. Like who could actually maybe play good, you know, respectable tackle football with pads. All right, uh, let's do a quick shout out to Bixby Coffee. Yes, they have. Uh, in case you haven't heard, shotgun been- start coffee, really. Shotgun start blend via Bixby. I've been furloughed from my job for three months, which is ironic given that golf will be back first and apparently be coming in May, a match. Uh, this is a way you can support us. I'm not asking or requesting, but people have reached out. This is probably the most direct way you can support us. We get a, uh, a nice cut of shotgun start blend. We had talked about doing this for a while. It's um, easier that or I don't know. We we find it more preferable than like just hey contribute to this Patreon account or something like that. Like this is you're ideally getting a good a consumable good that you will like. Bixby was on board with us. Really, they're our first sponsor, and they were our sponsor because we tried it. We thought it was quote as Andy said, good shit, and it is. So it's it's a way to support us while also getting hopefully something you like 
and will consume and something you need, especially right now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, get, the coffee is great. You, you need it. And, uh, you know, they've been a great partner. The best way to do it is subscribe. It shows up. You don't have to worry about running out. And uh, we're going to start getting more goodies for, for the people with the, that are subscribers. They're going to get little knickknacks, little yeah. things in, the, uh, in their uh, subscription. But they are, uh, thanks to Miles uh, and Remington out there, they are running full go out in L.A. right now. Shipments are coming out the door. A lot of you guys have jumped on, certainly since my news. You know, we've seen a slight uptick. I appreciate you guys supporting the podcast, supporting us. Um, it's good stuff. It's ours. It's it's kind of part of this community that we're you guys are all a part of. And uh, if you're a coffee drinker, uh, we appreciate you signing up. You you subscribe. The better deal is to subscribe. We'd kind of prefer to steer you towards subscription, but any support is greatly appreciated. You get 15% off when you subscribe. Um, and we may start adding other options, right? Other blends. Mm-hmm. You're We're the little the... bean boy that went out there and, yeah, and might, settled on this one. So might might add, a, a, add, a, add a second blend. We'll see. You know, if you got feedback on coffee, if you, you know, we were thinking about adding a lighter roast and, yeah. uh, you know, more option, maybe uh, steep bags. We'll see. We're, we're going to do more and more. So if you go to BixbyCoffee.com, there's like a tab for Shotgun Start and uh, you can subscribe there. So thank you all for that. Um, okay. News. News. We're just going to knock this out quickly. The match is coming. We'll talk more about this Monday. That's that's my reaction. Yeah, Monday we've got uh, we've got oh, walk up music too. Please, yeah, in honor of the Zurich. Sit, sit with Nick Faldo for the weekend and just know Andy is giddy. He was pissed that Faldo got bumped to two parts because he was like, I've been making this walk up music list, you know, all year. All year I've got my so this isn't like something done on the fly. Andy is coming fully prepped with walk up music, which was really one of the hit podcasts, the hit episodes of last year. We're gonna bump that to Monday. Because it's still relevant to the Zurich, that's not happening. In my opinion. yeah, it, it, it's um, just it's going to be for individual players since we don't have teams. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so that we'll talk more about the match on Monday. That'll be kind of a standard issue Monday reaction stuff. You have any other quick thoughts on the match? Um, you know, it's just it's interesting. I think obviously what's going on in the world makes things tough, but how long this has taken from first report. I mean, first report was you. You're, uh, you're, you're a little hunch. I don't know about that. It was a, it was a rumor, not a, not a hunch. Yeah. So it doesn't sound and, uh, like the PGA Tour has officially blessed it yet. We'll talk more about it, but there's no place in time. That's kind of like us to say something's happening. Oh yeah. We're going to uh, the Honda this year. They're, like to say, we're going to do something without providing actual hard details no no time or place yet on the match but we'll talk more about that on monday it's uh, gonna be in the swap though you think so it sounds like it yeah medalist via the via a big swamp hang it is at medalist that's, that's out what there? they're they're rumoring yeah okay okay uh all right we're gonna get to uh part two of nick faldo with uh sean martin thanks again to sean for his time this was a fun one i mean we sort of let it go at the end and talk more about his legacy but this is, uh, again, more on his attitude, his wives, his broadcasting career, Ryder Cup, and his uh, 96, 92 Open, 96 Masters. Also, a lot on Ledbetter. That was fun, talking about his relationship with Ledbetter. Let's get to part two.
Now we welcome back Sean Martin, still, I believe, senior editor, unless there was a promotion in the last couple of days, another promotion at PGATour.com. Uh, Smartin, have you read another biography, another you know lengthy work on Sir Nick in the intervening days to add to your knowledge base? There were a couple on Amazon, but I've not ordered them. Uh, <laughs> no, no more autobiographies, but a couple biographies. <laughs> There's not an autobiography for like the Ryder Cup, the 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 broadcasting years, the, you know, oh four to the present day. Well, I got to be honest. I mean, I bought it. I wanted to read more about the you know the Ledbetter years, the big teardown, the yeah. rebuild, the swing, and, and I was a little bit disappointed. That was the one thing that I felt like really did not get enough coverage in the book. It was like ten pages, real quick. We hit a lot of balls, made some changes, and holy, I feel like, I feel like you could write a book just on that process. So would you want to do Ledbetter real quick? I mean, what what we I, I know we hit on it last last week, but you know, he ripped it down, ripped it down, tore it down, brought it's it back. Probably, probably a top twenty player. Probably better than that. He won the European Tour Order of Merit in '83. Uh, won the RBC Heritage in '84. So uh, it's top fifteen player, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the anecdotes? Like he, he had Polaroids in. So after he tore it down, like just uh, let's had, talk about the whole relationship. He had a, like a reverse C. He had kind of a loopy. He had a little bit of a loop in his swing. And that's what he wanted to get rid of because he felt like it led to inconsistencies. That was a great detail from the Riley article was that he would look at Polaroid pictures uh, of his swing from Ledbetter. I love all these old school things. I did a thing on Tiger, the 94 U.S. Amateur, and him and Butch Harmon used to fax each other. But, that, I mean, <laughs> that's things have like, changed a lot. Like, he'd be in the airport and have, like, like these Polaroids out, just working on positioning and things like Perhaps that. shaking it like a... Oh, my God. There we go. Hey, pop culture smarting over there. Um, shake so it like I, a Polaroid picture. It just sounds like this relationship <laughs> went forever, and then it ended abruptly. Remember, I think he wrote him a letter, like saying, "David, I don't want to be, you know, have partners anymore." And I don't think they've ever talked since, allegedly. Well, I so think that's the, he covered. Oh, go ahead. That's because he started to try. There was a tiger impact on Faldo. You want to talk about that? Where he tried to get turned his grip a little bit. Well, He's tra- also, chasing distance. He covers it in the biography. So apparently, according to Faldo in the book, Ledbetter was behind on a deadline for an instructional book. And so he didn't fly out to the 1998 PGA at Sahali and sent an assistant instead. And that was kind of signaled the end of things. Wow. I didn't hear that. I didn't get that part. I just all I read I was read the book. Faldo. Faldo <laughs> just broke up with him via a letter. And that like sent Led, that pissed Ledbetter off. And then they they never talked again. This was like after they like when Faldo came to America late in, in his career again, like ninety five. Didn't they like buy a house like two doors down from Ledbetter, like in Orlando? They, they were like they basically were thick as thieves. Like you know, I, I think they both lived in Lake Nona, I believe. Um, I, 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 I feel like I read that a couple times. They were like two doors down from each other. I don't know which one it was. Can I just talk about something? Did we mention that Nick Faldo also used to live next to Elton John? They were they were buddies. They would run around yeah. when when Elton Faldo John was like come his, to tournaments. When Faldo was like at his peak. Um, so Ledbetter, what's the the, the Tiger anecdote? He, he changes his grip. He turns it his his grip slightly to add like try to chase like 10, 15 yards because Tiger was 
you know, scaring the hell out of everybody in 96, 97. Yeah, he talks about it in a Jaime Diaz article how he was trying some new things and, you know, we'll see if it's, you know, he, this is the way of the tour. Nick Faldo might have been the first victim to the the chase yeah. for distance, the modern t- chase for distance, you know, where uh, where Tiger was hitting it so far, he felt like he was at such a disadvantage and he had, to, and I think it's all stems from that '97 Masters, obviously, where where Tiger just showed a, a completely different brand of golf to the world. And well, they, uh, they played together in the first round. That's one of my favorite factoids. Is Tiger was the reigning U.S. Amateur champion when he won the 1997 Masters. So even though he had turned pro, they yeah. kept the tradition of pairing the defending champion, so Nick Faldo in the first uh, round with the reigning U.S. Amateur champion. So Faldo and Tiger played together that day. So this was Riviera in 97, which I think, I assume, came before the Masters. So before Tiger's big mm-hmm. Masters win. It was like That was la- uh, Faldo's last win. Yeah. Um, yeah. Real quick, I want to go back to the Ledbetter thing because I found the passage in the book. If I could okay, go ahead. do go a, ahead. a dramatic reading very quickly. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, so Ledbetter had fallen behind on a book deadline and sent an assistant to Sahali and Faldo apparently was never told directly. Um, so anyways, so about six weeks go by, no one really speaks. He doesn't hear from David Ledbetter. He says, he says, finally, I decided to make contact pending a brief, but to the point letter terminating our working arrangement. Uh, perhaps it would have been better if I had told David of my decision face to face, but I felt badly let down. He knew I was in the middle of a dispiriting slump in form but still skipped the USPGA at a time when I really needed him. Uh, he says he regarded the decision as a lack of commitment. Um, and then apparently they'd, they'd agreed kind of to keep things silent, but apparently then David Ledbetter had already done a magazine interview that kind of gave a lot of the details on the divorce. Um, but he does end the passage kindly, and he says that uh, he called it an incredible 13-year partnership. Um, My, here's so- a question. Do you He's think complimentary in the end? But yeah, it sounds like it was pretty. I, I mean, this, whatever article some... I read, the article might have been an 06 or something. It was like they haven't talked since now. You know what? That are it doesn't sound like they have. I've yeah. got a question. Do you think they live two doors down? Do you think he he did the Greg Norman where he walked down all the way down his driveway <laughs> and, and dropped it into into Ledbetter's uh, mailbox, a la Greg Norman and Tiger last year? It's unclear if they live. <laughs> They lived two doors down when this happened. That, that's funny. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, Faldo called the Ledbetter interview. He said it was mudslinging, subsequent mudslinging after the divorce. And he said he was especially offended because Ledbetter questioned his commitment, which to him, of course, as much as he practiced and devoted himself. So Whoa. That's, uh, that's a, yeah. That's I mean, great. Ledbetter was kind of like the, kind of like Faldo's voice for a while. Because Faldo, you know, didn't like the press, didn't talk to the press. Ledbetter seems to kind of run towards the press a little bit um doesn't mind getting the attention and so like he would almost speak on faldo's behalf to all these writers because faldo wouldn't give him much was like you know nixon an unhappy place he's you know getting divorced again or he's he's like he would always kind of be like tell us what's going on in nick's mind and and ledbetter would be sort of like the animating voice because faldo didn't give him give him much so um you want to do 97? I got to say, though. We got to do we got to do 92 open. I know, but just on Ledbetter, chasing distance. He goes, it's a more powerful position. Uh, he, he changed his grip, turning his left hand clockwise, the width of one knuckle. This is 97. We're trying to get a little more snap into his swing, a bit more pop to his shots. 
Nick's swing is kind of like a metronome, very calm. And this is a bit more speed. And uh, Ledbetter admits the change was in part influenced by Tiger. We've based Nick's whole game around control. And it's the biggest reason he's won six majors, Ledbetter says. But if you look the way Tiger is able to crash the par fives, it's obvious that length is an asset. No question Tiger has spurred people on. There's a new kid on the block, and we've got to put in that little bit of extra. Um, if Faldo's kind of like rebuffed this, like, eh, he hasn't done anything yet, you know, Tiger, but he's clearly changing his swing to get, get a few more discs. Well, and you got to remember, Faldo is six foot four. So he's the he's size, big boy. size of Dustin Johnson. Uh, <laughs> and was never a long hitter because he did have that controlled golf swing, which worked in that era. Who would be the, the it'd be like a six foot four pitcher throwing 85, <laughs> you know? That's a good point. It would it would be like DJ hitting at the distance of like Spieth. I don't even think Spieth. It may be even shorter than Spieth. All right. So now we. I just we we jumped around here just on the general theme of Ledbetter to break up the teardown. Let's get back on the Cron order, sort of so to speak. We we wrapped up part one with the ninety British Open. Maybe Faldo's kind of peak win. You know, the one where people say, you know, others didn't gag it away or it wasn't 18 straight pars. It was Fallow just ripping through the old course, you know, eviscerating Norman, as we alluded to. Now we get to 92 Open Championship. Um, still in the middle of those peak years that Andy sort of captured so well with some of those stats in part one. Do you, in 1995, real quick. Yeah. Guess where, what Faldo ranked on the PGA Tour in driving distance? Six foot four, Nick Faldo. Well, it's funny because while you're doing that, I pulled up 1996. So you go first. <laughs> T133. Wow. He was 120th uh, in 1996, 264.1 yards off the tee. Uh, only less than half a yard longer than Paul Goidos, noted bomber. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, Amazing. Goidos. He'd be like Webb Simpson long. Faldo is like a. I mean, he's a big dude, not just 6'4". Like, he's got shoulders. He's filled out. He's built. Um, all right. So let's get... get Ironically, to- in 97, he's trying to add distance. He'll, he didn't add any distance. He still hit a 261.8. <laughs> uh, <coughs> that's amazing. Had to drive Norman nuts, right? Uh, oh. Well, I think that's the thing. That's the thing that gets we talk about all the time like shorter hitters if they hit it really straight have a chance like they can make up the distance they lose to long hitters if they're in the fairway right yeah like they can there are guys that can hit you know long irons closer than long hitters can hit you know mid to short irons pretty (laughs) regularly but you know if they're in the rough they have no chance right and and it's in 96, Faldo's only 25 yards behind the longest driver on tour, which is manageable. But then all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, Daly and Tiger are averaging near 300, and he goes from being 25 yards back to almost 40 yards back. Yeah. I mean, point. Bryson's averaging 321 this year. Bryson's, Bryson might hear his name called tonight, first round of the NFL draft. <laughs> 6'1", 240, out of SMU. <laughs> Outside linebacker, Bryson DeChambeau. It's like, well, I'm at 240. I, I plan to be at 260 by training camp. You know, I don't know what's going on with him. What All do right. you think his 40 time is? 
I just want to see the 48 inch driver. It reminds <laughs> me of, do you remember the killer B? Yes. Driver? Uh, Thompson? My uh, uncle had one are. of those. <laughs> I was always jealous of my uncle with the killer B driver. Oh, also, uh, unfortunately, I have to make a correction. David Ogren confirmed on Twitter he did not play Zebo. <laughs> it was Duffy Waldorf. You need to, you need to uh, apologize. Issue a formal <laughs> apology for, you know. I swear we were going to talk about the 1992 British <laughs> Open like 10 minutes ago. We got into driving distance, the killer bees, Bryson DeChambeau's. Uh, All right, 1992. All right, so 92, open. Comes off the, his last major championship was the 90 at, at St. Andrews, the old course, back at Muirfield, site of his um, first major championship win, the open in, what was that, 87 we talked about? Um, and, you know, this is a little different. Faldo, Faldo's like final rounds are just like, you, you got this reputation as a closer, whether it's just completely steady, 18 pars, 15 pars, but here he he's like the lead, while others collapse all around him. Here he's like the lead dog and just like he's, he's totally shaky coming in. He started I think the final four shot lead if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, and that was gone. I think he was down two with four to play. To it John was Trump. it was like one of the greatest collapse. It was a great collapse and yep. then a great comeback all in one round. So <clears throat> he's back at Muirfield and. He's just a complete wreck in the final round. He's really shaky, blowing it to Cook. And, and this is like the most emotional we ever see him. Let's talk a little bit about the golf. But I just studying the stage of like he is sort of a basket case all day. And it shows even during the trophy ceremony. He talks about how he starts thinking uh, during the round that if he blows this lead, like the ramifications of it. And he's definitely playing scared. But then you list off the clubs he's hitting down the stretch and he's just striping long irons down the stretch. Yeah, it was a lot of the putting, right? Just the putt. He's like, I, I think he said afterwards, he's like, I don't think I could have made a three footer if we had to play another hole or or the final. I think the final tap. And he's like, if it was three feet, I wouldn't have made it. Um, so that, about- that's a late career issue, right? They always kind of blame the putting as, as for the fall off. I think the putting was always streaky because he and especially when he became so obsessed with the golf swing that he almost neglected the putter sometimes. So here's the yeah, yeah. They do cite that. Here's the comeback. Faldo birdied. So he, he just completely gagging, throwing up all over himself. He was up three first. three shots with nine to go. Uh, and and so he birdies. So he's down two with four to play, right? So he went from up three with nine to go to down two with four to play. Cook made some birdies. He made some bogeys. He birdies two of the last four holes. And this is John Garrity on quote the most esteemed course on the Open Roto, Muirfield, um, and he became the first British three-time winner of the tournament since Harry Cotton in 1948. Sir, Sir, Sir Henry. Henry, how dare Sir. you? I know. I've that's in the article. It said Harry Cotton. Who no. is Si? S- yeah, I promise you. I, well, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, I don't know if that's right. Um, <clears throat> so. You know, Cook. This is another kind of giveaway in the in the hocus and choke vein, and foul, uh, Floyd hitting it into the water on eleven, and <clears throat> Azinger going back to back bogeys, and Shark, uh, the Shark man. C- Cook blew a two and a half foot birdie on seventeen, and then bogeyed the eighteenth, while Faldo birdied the last two. Um, <clears throat> you know, the worst thing is the buildup Faldo said later to crying the aura of invincibility that rises around him when he was going well. 
a 64 on Friday, gave him a tournament record 130 for 36 holes the next day. But the International Herald Tribune headlined his open story thusly. Two rounds left, but the title seems his for the putting out. So it was like he's at the peak of his power. He sets a 36-hole mark, and it was just kind of like wobbling the whole way in there, just the basket case. And here's what um, <clears throat> he, the book bookmaker, I think William Hill, made him virtually unbackable favorite at one to six at the 36-hole mark. Said Cook on Saturday evening, if there's anyone that doesn't beat himself, it's Nick Faldo. So like alluding to the whole 18 straight par format, um, and Jerry Pate, who was also challenging on Sunday. He's probably the least likely to go out and shoot 74. And uh, he kind of almost did. He, he was on that path for 15 holes, basically. Birdie's the last two while Cookie, you know, blows it coming in. Misses a two-footer birdie and a bogey's the 18th. What else? And he, gets, he gets crazy in the trophy ceremony. He starts singing uh, Frank Sinatra's My Way. Yes. Because he'd been enduring so much criticism uh, over the swing changes, all this stuff that he, he does that. And then, of course, there's the famous line. He thanks the fans from the bottom of his heart and the media from the uh, heart of his bottom. <laughs> yeah, this a lot of angry writing about that line in the in the wake. Yeah, he feels like it was uh, he was trying to have a little fun. He felt like it was a little cheeky. He thought that the writers took it too personally, especially after all the years they've spent just uh, dragging him through the mud. He felt like they should have been a little tougher and just kind of taken what he thought was a, a cheeky moment. Well, imagine that writers taking something personally. They were not happy about this. I mean, every article is like, oh, it's a rude, ghastly <laughs> remark. You know, all these even years later, they they kind of this would be cited as for why he was, you know, a rude person, you know, even articles of the 2000s. Um, and he's just, he's a mess. He's crying in the, in the trophy ceremony. He's crying. Like, I think he just, he was like really cracking over the back nine and escaped there in the last, pulled it together somehow in the last, you know, 40 minutes while Cook blew it and, and gets his third open championship. I just thought the, everyone seemed shocked that he was so emotional and because you follow those usually this, you know, straight as an arrow and, and gives you nothing. Well, he was kind of emotional in the scoring, in the in the trophy ceremony, just sort of a mess. All right. Anything else on on Muirfield round two? Uh, just that year in the majors, uh, T4 in the U.S. Open at Pebble, won that Open Championship and then runner up at that PGA Championship. <clears throat> wow. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, okay. So I, I mean, set- the thing with Faldo that I think is fascinating is like everybody blames these like he kind of, he kind of gets this like everybody's folding around him, choking, handing it to him. But then he also is like the guy with the most close calls of the era too. Yeah. Compare outside of like Greg Norman, you know he he was around. He was always in the mix, and there are a lot of times where. You know, Medina or uh, the Curtis Strange, Oak Hill, where one thing or actually the country club, one thing goes a, a little bit differently and and he wins, you know. Right. Right. OK, so uh, anything there kind of uh, we got to keep this to a manageable length. But chronologically speaking, he comes back to America in 1995. That's like his official return to the PGA Tour to the point where he's Real like... Real quick, I would like to ahead. talk 94. There's a slight controversy there. Go ahead. All right. 
So he plays the 94 PGA at Southern Hills, right? Yeah. Um, and then he's quoted in a paper. He says he's trying to defend the European players. He's trying to speak on their behalf. You know, he feels like he has this role as the leading player to uh, speak up for the, rest of the players. And he says uh, in the book, after playing on the perfectly prepared fairways and greens of Southern Hills, pre-Core Crenshaw restoration, of course, I became extremely Gil Hans. Gil Hans, sorry, sorry, yes. I became extremely frustrated at the conditions on the European tour, and I aired my thoughts that we had fallen behind the Americans in course preparation and practice facilities in a newspaper interview delivered with honesty and genuine concern. <laughs> Much of the practice grounds in Europe were little better than a field at the time, with tees covered in stones from where you played over the brow of a hill so you never saw where your shots landed. So Mark James is livid about this. This starts a feud between them. Uh, Faldo thinks that the genesis of that feud is actually just the amount of appearance fee that Faldo uh, was getting and other players were jealous, but um, it leads to issues that you see in 99 when Mark James is the Ryder cup captain um, that there's a little feud between the two that I don't know if it's ever, uh, ever really been settled, but about what happened that in 99. Well, in 99 uh, Faldo writes in the book, uh, which by the way, when you write a book, you have plenty of time to think about what you're writing and you can decide if you want to you know, yeah. put these things in here, but he says, Exactly how Mark James ever came to be appointed Ryder Cup captain, I will never comprehend. Because to put it politely, he's always been a funny old chap. Mark James was involved with the little Ryder Cup uh, pranksters. Wasn't he the one that like didn't care about it? Or yeah. Uh... Well, and Fado was upset. So the last uh, event before the captain's picks for the 99 Ryder Cup, Faldo asks him, he's not playing well, but he says, well, you know, what if I win this week? Do I have a chance? And Mark James basically tells him no. And he's offended thinking that, you know, look, I'm struggling, but if I face my past resume, if I win this week, I should at least be under consideration. Uh, but he just felt like that uh, complete dismissal of his chances. Uh, it didn't sit well with him. In, in 97, by the way, his last one, he, after he won <coughs> at Riviera, he like, you know, he, called out Seve basically so it was Valderrama that year he's like <clears throat> I would just say you know I would just say they were on the other foot and I was captain and Seve had just won the LA Open he would be on my team yeah that's all I'll say <laughs> he's posturing uh, he's uh, I mean, he became a politician late in his career I mean just throwing it down the gauntlet you know, Some, put me on the team. All right, go ahead. One thing to note in this uh, in this in between his majors is ninety three Open Championship with uh, with at Royal St George's where Norman actually gets him on yeah. a final day. Yeah. Faldo shoots sixty seven, but Norman shoots uh, sixty four to come back from one behind Faldo to start the day. So that was a rare uh, rare shark attack. Shark yeah. got Faldo didn't have a good nickname. <coughs> You know, Nicky Faldo, but that was done by eighty-seven. You know the shark, the shark attack on, you know, Sir Nick on the night. Yeah. When did he Uh, get inducted into knighthood? Was that like two thousand five? I don't, I don't know that one. It must have been post two thousand four because it wasn't in the book, and the book ends in oh four. All right. Well, real quick, ninety-five. Yeah. The the relationship with the with college student Brenna Sepulak. Oh, so he's God. playing. You really want to go into all this? He okay. mentions it in the book. <laughs> oh no, I don't. I mean, this I is this it. is this is a big this is a big moment. I was <laughs> trying to keep it cross. Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead. This is so. I this mean, is part of his uh, his major void here for yeah. for yeah, three yeah. years. So this is his unraveling of his personal life. So yeah. he's now he's now playing full time in the United States. 
Uh, and he speaks pretty openly about it. And so he says, basically, he's practicing in Tucson for the, I think, Tucson Open. Northern and he meets her on, yeah. yeah, meets her on the driving range. She kind of comes up and starts talking to him. And he says, I was in golfing exile. This game's not going well. On my own, many thousands of miles away from the three children I love more than anything in the world. Perhaps that is why I proved so susceptible to Brenna's charms. At the time, I was depressed and lonely. And at almost 38 years of age, I suppose I was experiencing some sort of midlife crisis. And never being one to do things by half, I gave my particular midlife crisis my very best shot. He's pretty, I mean, the whole book after uh, this, he's pretty open about the ramifications and the aftermath of that divorce and the effect it had on him personally. I mean, it's a pretty dark time and he writes pretty openly about it. And he even, he doesn't tie it to her, but in the conclusion of the book, he writes, you know, I've been through a lot. I've even had my car attacked by a nine iron, uh, by a, a former uh, flame and, and other reports, you know, it's pretty easy to find that that is uh, Brenna Sepulak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She went crazy on his Porsche with a 9-iron, right? But, I mean, she was coming to the Masters with him. This was a, you know, this became a public romance. And she oh. had one oh. at the time. Very, very public. public. So, so, <laughs> the the so, Arizona I, coach line is the best. So they met. He got Arizona. So he lost his 21-year-old, you know, player. Because when Arizona women's golf coach Rick LaRose was surveying prospects for this upcoming season recently, he remarked, we had one player drop out, one transfer, and one run off with Nick Falda. <laughs> Pretty good assessment of your team. Uh, but this was like, so this was 95. I, I was told from people running around in the general circles with Falda back then that, uh, you know, Falda was always a womanizer, did well. But this particular individual made him feel young again, was all I was told. So but not, not just young herself, but made Nick feel young again. Sure. I mean, he said it's a midlife crisis. Yeah. In, in 94, dating a college student. Yeah. In 95, he had a run in with Tom Lehman at the Ryder Cup. What was that? Oh, so, oh, Oak Hill. Yeah. So, so uh, Lehman hit it to like a foot away and he was kind of like, <laughs> Feldo oh, mumbled yeah. something. Yeah. And and uh, in the speak American, I mean, he says, "Speak clearly." And Feldo then stretched his arm out as if to say, "Put your ball in your pocket, you idiot." <laughs> I remember that. So ninety five. I mean, this is all ties in with the new twenty one year old girlfriend. He's flipped from Euro, Euro tour, and, and what uh, Martin was just saying about like the rocks and the prep and the Europe. Right? Wasn't he like yeah, the dry the drive ranges weren't good, the prep facilities weren't good. He he he's like he just like three of the four majors are in the US. I need to come here, put on these perfect greens, work on these conditions. I read last night at one point to prepare for the PGA in Bell Reeve. So August. Uh I think it was ninety two was the Bell Reeve. Uh, I forget. Yeah, Nick Price won. He played two events in Africa. <laughs> To prepare for the humidity, like the, I don't know, the African tour, he played multiple events in Africa to prepare for Bell Reeve in August. I'll, I'll, I mean, Orlando I'll in August you, is pretty high. You should play in Orlando. I'll tell you what, that, that is a thing to do for, I, I, <laughs> St. Louis in August is one of the worst places in the world. So It's like 105 uh, and humid every day. So just to give you a sense, like that's why he's like in the U.S. now, 95, because he's like majors are everything. And three of the four are here, and I just need to do all my prep here. So his wife and kids are back home still in, in England. He, you know, runs off this 21-year-old. That gets back to that Faraday line from the banquet. I think it was the lead of the part one. You know, Faldo couldn't be here today. He's at the birth of his next wife. 
Um, and, and now he's playing full time in America. I have Jaime Diaz, ninety five. Um, he's the least liked player among his peers, but you know it's good to back have him back on the PGA Tour. Um, four of the men who handed majors to Faldo with eleven hour mistakes: Azinger, Hoke, Floyd, and Cook felt that the Englishman conveyed little empathy toward them afterward. Other players complained that Faldo's conversation during competitive rounds consists of little more than barely audible grunts. Even Nick Price, who can honestly call himself a friend, once concluded that Faldo simply has very little need for other people. So at age 37, with his peak years dwindling, Faldo made a dramatic career move. He leaves European tour and rejoins the PGA tour, which he had quit five years before. Um, I think real quick. So he announces the divorce around the Ryder cup of 1995 makes it yeah. official. Yep. Uh, and then this sets the stage. Cause it's crazy. After this conversation, there's still a major victory left to talk about. Um, yeah. But he says that the divorce plunged me into a living hell from which I would not emerge for five horrendous years. And he talks at length about just kind of the weight that he was under and basically why his career is basically over by 97. Uh, and the big thing I think was missing the three kids. Uh, it was, I think that was hard on him and, um, was what they, really down. They eventually, after the divorce, his wife Gill, who was his, you know, the secretary of his IMG manager, the second wife, who had the three kids, they also got a house in like Lake Nona. She moved over eventually, so his kids could be a few doors, you know, in the same neighborhood. I think it's all Lake Nona. He I keeps believe. keeps his uh, his exes close, closer, his friends close, and his exes closer. The twenty one year old. College players. Well, he had led better two doors down too. Yeah. What? What's the story of the nine iron on the Porsche? I, I, all I, I, I why or why? He, I want to say it's when he broke up with. Him. Yeah. I, okay. All, all okay. I got, I've got something from a, a Garrity piece. We'll get to that. Let's talk okay. about his last major trial. All right. 96, 96 masters. We, so 95, he's full time in the States. 95, he beats Curtis Strange, you know, it's critical singles point. His wife is, you know, we talked about that at the banquet, just a mess. That's like the end of their marriage. And uh, he comes into 96. Let's do it. He's so, not playing well. So he talks about going for, going for a practice round. His first practice round for the 1996 Masters uh, skies his tee shot on 10, <laughs> skies his tee shot on 11, and then pops up his tee shot twice on 13. Unbelievable. <laughs> a case of the pop-ups. <laughs> But you don't get the pop-ups anymore with the 460 cc yeah, it's pretty like almost impossible to pop the ball up that's a real thing though when you go to a, a small hor- head uh the chance of a pop-up was horrifying what counts as a pop-up a guy's already hitting it 260 on average oh wow average, no i'm just wow. he, he was I'm like just... a big version of mike weir <laughs> so Faldo basically goes in from this practice to have lunch and at his table I didn't quite get how this all happened but at his table apparently is the man who was assigned to do security for him at the 1994 PGA at Southern Hills because uh, the media is all over him he has his own security guy I don't know if it, he hired him or the tournament did at one point a, a reporter uh, at Southern Hills comes trudging across the putting green the, this guy who's a cop steps in front of the, the British reporter and asks him are you tired of your teeth like basically, if you take another step and knock your teeth out. So, anyways, this guy is in the clubhouse at Augusta for some reason and just tells him, "Hey, remember, you're Nick Faldo." And he says, "This is like the pep talk he needs to uh, get him going." Wow, that's what you get in autobiography. This, the this guy's name was Bob Cotton, not Harry, not Henry, Bob Cotton. <laughs> All right, so '96, Andy, you want to go? A uh, '96 so, master? Uh, yeah. So obviously, this is this is the famous Norman 
meltdown. Right. He's right. got a seven shot lead um, going into Sunday, and you know, pretty much, kind of everybody thought it was on ice. Every people were saying. Uh, somebody said to Norman the night before, like, "You can't even screw this one up," yeah. and that was like the dagger. <laughs> um, but one of the things that gets gets lost is like. Faldo again plays just an unbelievable round of golf. And unbelievable so, last so, round. So Peter Alice, uh, I found this in a BBC article. He said that round would be in my top ten. A lot of people think Greg threw it away, but I've watched it fifty times, and he probably hit only four bad shots. We had the cameras on Nick throughout, and he never got carried away when he holed out a putt or started smirking with his caddy when Greg dropped another stroke. His demeanor that day was a credit to him. So just like, that's one of the things, is seven shots back, and the guy didn't play that bad. Six Six shots, my bad. And the guy didn't play that bad, you know? It was in, because Faldo shot 67, you know? Well, that's, it was a yeah. low score on the weekend. He shoots 67 on Sunday in the final group of the Masters. It's it's just unbelievable. Again, the lowest score on the entire weekend. Like that that the, the sexier story is is Norman blowing it, but Faldo was an ace. And again, he's in the middle of a 12 million dollar divorce with his wife. He's like, you know, searching for form, popping it up. The 21 year olds in the crowd this week. It, it's just kind of a mess. And he shooting 67, the lowest score on the weekend. So real quick, he arrives late to Augusta on Sunday. He said he got engrossed in a NASCAR race. And so he showed up to the practice tee 57 minutes before his tee time, whereas Fanny always knew that 90 minutes ahead of his tee time was when he arrived at the range. But uh, Hey, quick question on Fanny. Is, is she the first woman caddy to win a major? That may be right. I, I read a long article on Fanny back then. You know, they alleged that he was having the tabloids alleged he was having an affair with Fanny when she showed up on the bag. <laughs> there was a great like, quote. So ridiculous. They, they brutalized him. The tabloid. The great. There's a great quote about Fanny about. Uh, so when he switched to Fanny, he, he was like, he said, she said, she said more to me in a hole than my old yeah. guy said in an entire rounds. Yeah. And I think she was like a very. She's an underrated credit to the Faldo yeah. career, where she almost was the balance that he needed she says you know he keeps him motivated the two chatter between shots and she reminds him when he's on the tee to keep his tempo down and on the green to keep his head still like so giving him sort of tips you know if faldo you know chatting with him much more than his player uh playing partners or any other you know his previous caddy so uh that's his team fanny so 96 masters um he shoots 67 in the middle of kind of, I thought this sort of captured it. Um, let me find it real quick. Captured it well. It was just like, uh, like while Norman was collapsing, Faldo was just like, I think this is Jaime Diaz. He called, talked about like the daggers that Faldo was just throwing into Norman's side. After chipping three strokes off the lead on the first seven holes, I think this characterizes the, the change well. Faldo began planting daggers. When Norman saved par on the eighth hole after hitting his second shot into the trees, his apparent psychic victory was turned into defeat because Faldo topped him with a 20-footer from the fringe for birdie, cut the lead to three. When Norman, who had lost another stroke with bogey at nine, pulled an eight-iron approach to the par four tenth, Faldo patiently put his nine-iron shot on the green, which induced Norman to play a sloppy chip and bogey again. 
after Norman showed real frailty by missing a two and a half foot putt on the par f- par for par on the eleventh, that squandered the final stroke of his lead. Faldo delivered a merciless, merciless body blow to his gasping adversary on the twelfth by drilling a majestic seven iron, seven iron over Ray's Creek to within fifteen feet. That shot carried such authority that there was little surprise when a shaken Norman put his own seven iron shot in the water with the same kind of weak block to the right that has derailed him in past major championships. Faldo has passed the charismatic Ballesteros, long considered Europe's most significant modern day player, in much the same way Nicholas supplanted Palmer. Among tour pros under the age of 45, only Nick Price has won as many as three majors. So, um, and, and then Faldo has now separated himself as the era's dominant player. I wish I'd won what Nick Faldo's won, said an admiring Norman, but I haven't. I, I guess I thought that just really captured it well of like, yeah, you know, Norman's hitting some loose shots, but Faldo's kind of inducing some of those with with his daggers. So put, yeah, he put the pressure on him. You know, that's the thing is it's so hard. It's a really hard thing to play with that big lead yeah. because you feel like you're kind of constrained. And I think that's something that, yeah, all great players have struggled with is where you know they. It's just really hard to play when you're six up out in front, and um, and then when you've got a guy that's gaining, all of a sudden you go from six to five to four to three, and it's like three shot leads still huge, but it yeah. feels so small when you've lost three already. Yeah, a big thing too. Faldo birdies eighteen on Sunday to get was- into the final group. And then he talks about on the second tee, he could tell that Greg was in trouble because he just kept re-gripping. And he, was, he said it looked like he was almost scared to pull the club back. Whoa. Yeah, Alice talked about that too. Is like uh, he knew Greg was in trouble because he was just like, it was taking him so long. Like, look how long he's standing over the ball. This is so not Norman. Like, he's just, you could tell that he was just really struggling with the moment. I feel like Tiger kind of said that last year about Molinari. Like Molinari really was scratching together pars to the first like six, seven holes last year. But Tiger's like, yeah, I could tell. Like I just like kind of, you, you can tell when someone's flushing it. You listen for it, and, and I, I just needed to kind of hold my water through the, through the, through the round. Um, On a personal note, this is kind of the first golf tournament that I remember. Uh, I was getting dressed for a little league game when Norman mm-hmm. always hold out his chip on 15, but this was like peak, like Mizuno Tezoid irons. Yeah. And yeah. To see Rossi two putter. This was like peak for those. I loved those clubs so much. Uh, anyway, all right. Back to Feldo. Should we talk about the finishing 15 foot birdie? Just kind of like, it's already done. Norman's what it was gone from six to. Feldo had a four shot lead with two holes to go. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it went really really bad fast you know what's something that's just amazing i watched a little bit of this from the i started it uh last night and i watched uh a little of it it's like how i just it got me thinking about the era we live in now with live scoring on our phone and on the on the internet how people like it's master sunday and you turn the tv on and you literally had no clue what was going to be the leaderboard like the idea of that, like nobody knew what was going on and the leaderboard until the TV turned on. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're on like the back, they're about to go to the back nine and nobody knows what happened. The first six holes. It's just like all of a sudden the TV trade it t- comes on and it's like, Oh my God, this is what's going on. Like you go, like you have no clue what to expect when that, that coverage flips. Well, also on the weekdays, after you're done watching on USA, you have to wait until the next day's paper comes out to see the rest of the scores that finished outside of the TV window. Unbelievable. 
It's just <laughs> great. Just a crazy. It's so different than now. Now, now we watch every off. single shot live, essentially. Uh, okay, so the last, just the last blow, and, and Andy, I think, alluded to this in part one. He makes a 15-foot birdie. Uh, he barely raises his hands above his head, didn't yell or dance, looked like a man in the back of church who had won a clandestine hand of gin. Uh, after he finally took a comp- the accomplice ball out of the cup, I think this is uh, Riley, maybe? I'm not sure. No, it's Sports Illustrated, I believe. He turned to Norman, hugged him long and hard, and said, I don't know what to say. I just want to give you a hug. I feel horrible about what happened. I am so sorry. Both men teared up. Very like anti-Faldo type action, but at that point it was over and done with. I mean, it, I one time apologized to somebody after like a really bad collapse in a tournament that yeah. I kind of got handed a win yeah. in a match. Yeah, And it's a weird thing, but I mean, he was four shots down Tim on the on the eighth tee and four shots up on the sixth on the seventeenth tee or sixteenth the seventeenth tee. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Eight holes. So again, just a sixty seven, lowest round of the weekend. I think his putter was really hot. He was making everything and that was kind of summed up with by making that last fifteen footer for Birdie on eighteen. Oh uh, so real quick, just the ninety five Masters is won by Ben Crenshaw who Hits it like 255 off the tee. He hands the jacket to Faldo, who's hitting it like 265. And all of a sudden, Tiger comes a- along and is hitting it 320. It's just crazy how the game uh, changed in that time from 95 to 96 to 97. Yeah. I mean, what was the one they were talking about? He was debating five wood and two iron on 13, five wood and two iron. Yeah. Is that 96 just... or 90? That was 96. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you birdied 13. And 15 feathered a two iron into the middle of the green and made birdie. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anything else on 96 masters? No, no, no. going once. All right. Uh, so he's now six. Time oh, eight. oh, one, one thing. Uh, Brenna, his, yeah. his new 21 year old flame afterwards, yeah. she went back to their, uh, you know, house Oh, this is good. To change for the traditional champion's dinner, and Faldo is left to wait outside Butler Cabin in the dusk, shoeless and almost wordless. An amazing day, he said, quietly shaking his head. Amazing. I don't know how it happened. He played so great. It was the strangest turn of events I've ever seen. I feel genuinely... But anyways, Brenna comes back, and she's like, but what are you going to (laughs) wear? And he's like, well, I got this... The screen jacket. <laughs> and I mean, just to think about, she yeah. played golf in college. She, Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. 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 Well, maybe she didn't know the formalities of the dinner. I have no idea, but that wasn't funny. It's like, oh, it's sweetie. I, I have my new green jacket. Uh, okay. So anything else? 96. He's got his six major championships. Uh, and in. Sort of a Lyle fashion that that was it. I mean, one Riviera '97. There's a good line about uh, in the Diaz article about the Riv win. Yeah, can, yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's not just another one. Well, so it's just a, it was just, it, something I just thought about. Go ahead. Okay, Go ahead. in such a big time atmosphere, Faldo be, once again became a big time player. If more tour events were held at masterpieces like Riviera, Faldo probably would have had more than two victories. 
No, it's just it's not just another one. He said after his thirty ninth win worldwide, this tournament has history and atmosphere. This is the sort of golf course I'm meant to win on. It's kind of a it's kind of a Brooksy type thing. It's like I, I I'm the big game. I'm this is the kind of event I'm going to win, not you know the whatever some other PGA Tour event. Uh, I, I know ahead. I know that like John Daly obviously, but like there was a a great IBF uh, Ian Baker Finch quote on Daly from the uh, from the '92 uh, Open where yeah. he said. He said he did not feel comfortable with this style of golf, said Baker Finch on John Daly. Oh, yeah. His idea of golf is 7,000-yard TPC course, water on every hole, soft greens, and hitting all of his second shots past the pin. So it's just, Mike, he, he did win at St. Andrews. I know. Yeah, I was getting in three years later. I know, but it's just an interesting, you know, kind of uh, oh, yeah. uh, there, tidbit. There, there are a lot of these kind of comments 25, 30 years ago. Of you know is is St Andrews obsolete? Is you know it's interesting to read a lot of these comments on course setup. Almost seems like we're still having a lot of these debates. Anyways, I just thought it was kind of interesting the self check. Like I am meant to win the biggest events on the biggest courses on the best courses. Uh, which you know he's a six time major winner. You can say that with wins at three at Augusta, two at Muirfield, one at the old course. Um, by the way. He had only three PGA Tour wins in like 140 starts at that point. So there was this kind of there was I mean he had a ton of boatload of Euro Tour wins, but there was that element of you know he's won Doral, Riv, Harbor Town, and that was kind of it in a ton of starts and had six majors. Um. All right. Anything else? 97. He's done. Falls Just, off. Well, so Go he ahead. writes. He writes pretty well about the aftermath of Riviera. Okay. So. He arrives in Doral for that tournament, and he says that uh, even though I had just come off the back of a win, I suddenly thought, well, that's it. Uh, basically, he, like, it's this voice in his head that said, like, that's your career's over. This is, this is the last thing. Uh, he says, the Nissan Open of 1997 thus remains my last individual tournament victory, which I can only put down to finally snapping under the strain of my increasingly tangled life away from the golf course. I was completely drained, a state from which seven years on, I'm only now emerging. Wow. So I think that's, you know, he obviously had personal life issues, but I, 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 when I think about all these players and there's like this, there's this weird thing with 10 years that we keep kind of brushing up on where Curtis Strange was really 10 years, right? Sandy Lyle was 10 years. Woozy had 10 good years, right? VJ Singh kind of 10 years, albeit late. And I think there's just something, you know, obviously the personal life stuff with Valdo, but there's something that's just so taxing about being one of the five guys versus being one of the 25 guys, you know? And being in contention on a Sunday is so stressful. I I don't know. Tigers was 10 years. 10 years. I mean, granted, he choked everybody else out in a way that we've never seen, but it was still about a 10-year stretch if really... 08, you know, 98 to 08, or at the majors at least. There's uh, Phil kind of has like a 10 year where it's like, okay, this was a different 10 years of his career than everything else, too. Same with Ernie. It's, it's a, I think it's, it's, it's easy to have very long careers in golf, but much like every other sports, uh, every other sport, 
there's like a 10 year window where you can be really, really one of the best, like the best. Uh, all right. You want to talk? What, what should we talk about now? Career has wound down. It, it just kind of falls off. He plays. It's like this, like incomprehensible scores for Faldo, you know, shooting 80 at the open and uh, not breaking 80 at the open. It goes bad so john garrity wrote an si piece the title of it is the devil made him do it nick faldo sacrifices his life for his game and now he has neither yeah um talks about like how he you know all the personal like everyone got was put second to his golf yeah i mean he he induced the kids so he could play in tournaments he talks about you know that moving to america while his family stayed home in england like he knew that wasn't ideal from a family standpoint but i mean he admits that his sporting greatness was first priority that he only had so many years to make hay. And so everything else did fall behind that. That was his number one priority. Um, so this article is just the lead of it's really great. You know, he talks about it. Garrity kind of talks about how he makes this deal with the, the devil. Like, you know, I'll grant you these wishes, but they come at a price and Faldo responds, I'll pay any price. But then, Flashing forward to now it's 1999 and Faldo is in torment. He has lost his second wife to divorce along with three children in his mansion in Windlesham. His nearly 600,000 a year club sponsor uh, endorsement contract with Mizuno has expired. He has seen his 900,000 shares of Adam golf stock fall from a high of $18 and 88 cents to $4 and six cents a share at week's end. He has lost his American girlfriend who expressed her disapproval for his Faustian Faustian bargain by uh, smashing the bonnet of his Porsche with a nine iron. Finally, and this is the hell of it, he has lost his skills. Last week, Faldo shot 80-73 at the Masters and missed the cut for the third straight year. It's just kind of these incomprehensible scores for Faldo. It was gone. It was gone. I mean, as you can imagine, it unraveled. But he had a second act, obviously, as Ryder Cup captain, as broadcaster. You want to talk real can I, quick? Can I read a passage from the book about that kind of relates to this? Yeah. yeah. Another, another dramatic reading. Uh, I suppose it was as though I was standing on the bow of a ship cutting through the water, playing tournaments, winning, losing, and becoming world number one without any conception of the havoc I was wreaking. As I powered forever onwards, I was completely unaware of the mountainous waves being created behind me. It's a good uh, analogy there, huh? Pretty reflective. Yeah. I don't know that he necessarily regrets it, but he does admit that, I mean... But then didn't he get divorced? Didn't he get divorced again in, in the aftermath of that book? I think he got married and divorced since that book. And also no, you know, I, has another girlfriend. Man. What? I don't know. I mean, he does talk... There's a third wife in here, Valerie, this Swiss woman, I believe. I think they're, they're split, and he's now with oh. somebody else. I think. I'm pretty sure. The book um, ends in 2004, so unfortunately, my research post 04 is lacking. okay. I just have one more quote. We talk about how he's weird, like just kind of this insular dude. This is like the early 80s when he's like battling Lyle and losing to Lyle, and he's taking defeats really hard. And um, just talking to personality, are either of you cat people? No, not at all. I I'm not a cat person, but he was apparently a huge cat guy. I don't trust cat guys. <laughs> I don't understand cats. I don't know why you have cats. But, I, you know, I, don't, I don't like cats, but cats love me. It's oh a weird thing. I think it's... it's they a, love you to mess... They know you don't like them, so they love you to mess with you. 
So when his kids were young, he was just like, I just can't wait for them to get older so I can get cats again. You didn't want to get them while they were like two. He goes, then I could start having cats. When Natalie starts school, the family is going to be based, you know, in England more often. So there'll always be somebody in the house. Then I can start having cats. I love cats. When I was young, we had two black ones, Samson and Delilah. The boy, Sam, was mine. He was great. So lovable. He had a nice fat face like a sea otter. <laughs> I love that. I just had to get that quote out. <laughs> Big cat guy, Faldo. Couldn't wait. I don't understand cats, but, you know, again, that, that kind of gets to. Uh, it, it's, it explains a lot. Just kind of wanting his kids to get older so he could have cats again. Or the, the waves behind him. Serving his own needs. Okay, anything else on uh, attitude? I mean, any other stories about... Uh, he, he was clearly... He was hot-tempered. He was cold to other people. Playing partners, press. Anything on the attitude? Any other stories you guys want to get out there? So, so people... Everybody talks about how once he knew his career was over, what he did was he realized that he had to be a different person. And he... He essentially took all the energy he worked on with his game to his personality. And that's how he was able to pull this 180 and com- be a completely different TV personality than he ever was on the golf course, where he's got all these, you know, isms and his like, you know, playing kind of like a an idiot role a, a lot of times and, and trying to be funny and cracking jokes when it was completely the opposite, where... Um, you know, it, Peter Alice talks about how he almost like realized how remodeling a swing, he had to suppress his, his, his personality. And because that's the way he had to play to win. And then how he basically, you know, it was a, it was a deep down Faldo always wanted people to like him, but he just knew he had to play that way to win. Yeah. Yeah, Again, he, that's, that's, he calls it a defense mechanism earlier in the book, kind of that mechanical robotic personality. <laughs> so so there's a great Sandy Lyle quote on playing with Faldo. Do you want okay. it? Yeah. So yeah. told told that he had been drawn with his old rival at Wentworth. Sandy Lyle res- once responded, I guess I'll take my Walkman with me then. <laughs> I've never known Nick. If he walked past me right now, he wouldn't stop to talk. He they wouldn't even Sandy. say hello. <laughs> I guess the University of Houston bonds don't run deep. Right. <laughs> Brendan uh, uh, Bernard Gallagher, European team captain from 91 to 95. What Faldo brought to the team room. Gallagher's response was, Faldo brings you points. Is that <laughs> it? <laughs> I asked. He said, yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right, so he takes on the second personality, becomes an announcer. You know, obviously, it's the, the. I don't know. He has the lifetime exemptions, right? The Open and the Masters, and he just stops, stop. It doesn't use them, you know, stop, or intermittently uses them. Says, "I'm not going to play the Open this year. I'll play it this next year." Because his game is just not a life that he can come to terms with. Shooting scores, like posting scores, like that. Um, when does the uh, the broadcast? Stuff in earnest starts what with ABC is like the big one, right? Yeah. Tim and Azinger are together, but only for a year. And then CBS gets him. Pounces. Yeah. Pounces. There's all this stuff about the tour negotiations, how they left ABC, and people are so 
mad about this Azinger experiment. Azinger experiment lasting only, was it a year? One season, I want to say. 06 was when they flipped. Well, he you takes- have the full Azinger uh, experience now. That's right. That's true. So he takes the baton from from Lanny Watkins. CBS swoops in because the thing that Azinger goes so well, and I think it was 05, People are just obsessed with it. They're so mad that they're breaking them up. I read several articles about, you know, ABC not renewing with the tour, but CBS swoops in, as does Golf Channel, and he's like this, you know, hot commodity to be on the call. Uh, I guess, and then he said, when he first started, he said Miller was, Johnny was the best, but he'll make Johnny Miller look like Mary Poppins. So he was going to become more intense, more, I don't know, unvar- you know unfiltered. So. This is the thing that kind of gets me is like, is Faldo's playing to the masses with the way he, he broadcasts? It kind of yeah. disappoints me because like the guy won six majors. Right. And you listen to him on air and you're like, you never, it, it, it's a kind of a tough situation because if you talk about it, people are going to be like, oh, he just keeps bringing up the past. Yeah. But it, it, that's what made Johnny great. Yeah. But Johnny did get a lot of criticism for it. He did. I think a lot of it, like, I think he's got uh, got a ton of, just because, but at the true golf fan, like the diehard golf fans, like, that's what they want, you know? So well, I don't know if you have realized this, but sometimes on social media, it becomes popular to criticize something, <laughs> start criticizing it because it's the popular thing to do. Oh, uh, I did find one course. thing where during the early broadcast, he like ripped on the Nike ball. He said the Nike ball, quote, fell out of the sky. Oh, but, and then Golf Channel had to apologize because Faldo had mel- failed to mention that like, this came from some study, and I think Golf Magazine is where is, is this line came from. It, it includes evidence that the one platinum Nike ball performs better as swing speeds increase, but that Nike had asserted the magazine study, the ball was designed for Tiger who swings at a blazing speed, whereas the study was for like a 10 handicapper. And then he, uh, Faldo, equally egregious, Faldo neglected to disclose that he had signed an endorsement deal with TaylorMade. Oh, yeah. so he was like comparing the TaylorMade TP Black but you know, boss saying the Nike fell out of the sky. Well, while we're on the ball, yeah. Important tidbit about the '96 Masters. Faldo yeah. won with a a precept dual cover that was a a solid core golf ball. Yeah, they talked about. There was an article about he and O'Meara, the yeah. new ball, Faldo's new ball. He also, and I think this was an earlier episode. He won with that Titleist with the 384 dimples. Oh yeah, was quickly, 84. Uh, yeah, that was Hal Sutton. Legal. Sutton's Faldo uh, too. Salden, they made it illegal after Sutton's PGA win, right? A mm-hmm. week after uh, Riviera. Yeah. All right. So I, bringing this, bringing this modern day for a second, hot second. Faldo, this just complete incorrigible ass, like real cold. His whole career and now is like this character on TV. Who could you see that being a modern day player? Like right now that. You're just like, wow, that guy is just not personable, doesn't light up a room, not necessarily nice, and is going to be this. Bubba. God, can you imagine him rambling with a microphone? Amazing. I mean, I he, say, he wants to be an actor. <laughs> wow. 
I would say uh, DJ maybe would surprise me the most as like being able to just be a, you know, not real, not a great quote now and pretty dry and then somehow turning into a TV person later on. I don't know. I don't know if this is the caliber of player, but I think it's Patrick Cantlay. Oh, I think Cantlay is underrated as a speaker. He appeared on another golf podcast. No laying up. I'm a, I wasn't. Hey, no free ads. I wasn't going to say it. But, we, uh, we, we are a free ad platform. Okay. We, we believe in, in free ads. Uh, so, but Cantlay, I find him intelligent, well-spoken. He's a reader. He's funny, uh, kind of low-key funny, dry funny. Uh, he doesn't like suffer fools well. He does. He's not going to be on TikTok. He doesn't answer. Uh, if a question is bad, he just will admit it that it's a bad question. Not necessarily like try to save it and you know. But if you add, get him going on golf and things like that, he's great. I'm yeah. a big Cantley guy, and I think that that could shine through eventually. That's, that's a good. A good that's one. a good comparison. Could, it's a really could good comparison. Have a multi-major career coming. You know, was brilliant at a young age. Yeah. That's a that's a I'm I I'm I'm jealous that that was your take. Yeah, I mean he's just he's very smart uh, and he's really intelligent and uh, when you get him talking, you know he's not going to weigh in on the latest gossipy whatever. He's not going to make headlines, but when you get him talking golf and, and things that he's passionate about, he's great. The thing with Faldo though is so weird is like he's willing to play this goofball. Yeah, right? he's willing to be out there. They were talking about it at the Bob Hope as <laughs> the a, he's with the microphone and he's like dancing and talking to Justin Timberlake. He wants he, to be like this goofball, kind of overcompensating. Cat- that pebble he caddied for Huey Lewis and he wore a wig and he called himself Fanny Faldo. I don't, you guys came across that? Yeah. Can we talk about the Ryder Cup captaincy? Yes, How big it. of a disaster it was. Any other Ryder Cup stories? We cover Ryder Cup a lot with these guys, but I think Faldo, there's not a lot of anecdotes when he was a player. It was just uh, kind of this cold machine. You talk about the layman there's, not there's, giving them the mumbling sort of the gimme on 95. In 91, he was criticized for the oh, yeah. for uh, his David Gifford. <laughs> his, yeah. uh, um, he, he scarcely spoke uh, as a senior partner. Uh, it said, so... He, he should have put Gifford at, at ease. Yeah. But he didn't, you know, there was oh, a lot of bad. His partners, yeah. Forsman's partner. Yeah. Yeah. And he just got David Gifford. He was a rookie and they just got, got smoked seven and six. And everybody's like, yeah, hey, Faldo was cold to him. He just like was. And, and people were like, well, like in Faldo's defense, Gifford is, is quiet, quiet as a mouse. Uh, yeah. Gilford, not Gifford. Gilford. Gilford. A couple things. One, to show how far the Ryder Cup has come, when he played in 1977, he's looking back at it in the book, he says about the Ryder Cup, the whole thing was an amateurish adventure. You arrived at Royal Lytham, were handed your sweater, which was either too small or too big, but never ever the right size, ordered into line to have your official team picture, and then you teed off. Uh, and then fast forward to 93, and him and Monty are paired together. It's like Europe's super team, and Monty's asked if he's looking forward to playing with Faldo. He says... Oh yes, but then we're both awkward buggers, aren't we? The, so one other thing from this Guilford, the so the interesting aside to this incident uh, is there. 
as there seems to be with every Faldo story, Guilford recalled how at a tournament a few weeks before, they exchanged cards at the end of the round, and he noticed that Faldo had made 10 or 12 mistakes on oh my, my card, <laughs> and that's no exaggeration. I don't know what he was trying to say or do, but I've never had that before with anybody. I'm a big fan of what he's achieved, but he's not a wonderful man. <laughs> There are a couple of those. <laughs> I, think this speaks, I think this speaks to how into his own game he was, that he would yeah. make 10 to 12 mistakes on, on somebody else's card. Well, it's like the supposed story of Hogan when he's playing with Claude Harmon and, and Claude aces uh, number 12 at Augusta, and Hogan birdies it for the first time, and the story goes that Hogan's walking off the 12th green, and he goes, Claude, wouldn't you know, that's the first time I've birdied 12 at Augusta. What'd you make? Oh, my God. See, that, I think that a lot of his like in, uh, insularness of on the on the course was just like the way he competed. All right, so Ryder Cup. That this is not to suggest he was there was not many antagonistic moments because he was there for twenty years. But just like it feels like there are more stories as it relates to Seve, Woozy, a few others. Like Faldo's just this machine racking up points and he was cold to his partners cold to his opponents uh but it really sort of it really blew up uh, when he was captain oh wait just total foul though like this is like when he's you know trying to be mr popular right i mean he's trying to have this new uh he's got the tv persona he's not the jerk anymore but you know it just takes a totally different approach he seemed to relish kind of holding other players fates over their heads as captain's picks. There's stuff about Monty, you know, at the end of 08, you know, wrestling because he's probably not going to make it. And Faldo, Faldo, meanwhile, is on TV calling these events for potential picks, just sort of uh, a pig and shit, as they say. Half, you know, and Poulter, obviously, Poulter was an unpopular pick for Valhalla. But then he ended up getting the most points. Yeah, controversial. The people thought they were going to take Darren Clark. It just seemed like Faldo really relished holding their fates over their heads while also calling their golf at, at the end. And then he had the, the scuffle with Sergio. Oh, yeah, that blew up, blew up quite a bit. So uh, let's just read about the week of for a sec. This is we're, we're going to do crib notes on this. You know, this is Wikipedia. Erratic relationship with the media prior to and during the competition. It was suggested by some journalists that Fallow's actions cost him considerable credibility. During practice, photographers had taken pictures of him holding a list of players' initials, seemingly outlining the partnerships for the coming days. This is just his history of the photographers, whether they're, you know, calling up to his room in Hawaii with his mistress. It's just the tabloids really did probably make him more of a jerk than he otherwise would have been. They were in his head. <laughs> Uh, so he, he met, you know, he tried to deny that the initials were, were it was just a p- list of players sandwich orders. And this was met with extreme skepticism from the media, which notably irritated Faldo when he was asked continuing questions about it. He eventually admitted they were possible player parents. Um, his attempts at humor in the opening ceremony seemed to fall flat with the audience. He brought more criticism upon himself. I remember these opening ceremonies. It was really awkward. He brought more criticism upon himself by taking up the majority of his opening speech by talking about himself and his family. And then he introduced Graham McDowell by asking, "What? where do you come from again? Ireland or Northern Ireland? <laughs> He's the 
captain. This is 08. Um, I think, just... but I think this also going back to Sean's point from the autobiography where he talks about how he thought that the Ryder Cup was kind of just a joke. He, he only, well, that was early on. I yeah. think the Great Britain and Ireland team, uh, was lacking in organization. It wasn't really until it became the European squad, uh, and the Ryder Cup grew a little bit that they kind of grew in their own, uh, I guess. As a culture. Yeah, yeah. More as like a culture. He only, so 08 about how he only appoints one vice captain as opposed to the usual four or five. That was kind of created a ton of doubts from the press, uh, you know, about what was going on in the matches being played simultaneous. Faldo was accused by the media of being a loner and a control freak and which contributed to the team's failings. Um, he controversially decided to play Sergio and Westy, uh, the two most successful Ryder Cup players on his team, for only one session on Saturday. And uh, but th- that was vindicated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when the team kind of came back on Saturday, and then he decided at the end to play a bottom heavy. You know, this was what Curtis Strange got excoriated for, which we went in our Strange uh, profile a couple weeks ago. Uh, he went with all the big guns at the end of the lineup for a Sunday singles attempt, comeback attempt, and this just got him, you know, crucified. I've never really understood the criticism of top heavy versus bottom heavy because, yeah, yeah, if you go top heavy and then you draw close, but you've got a bunch of schlubs at the end of your lineup, you're going to get smoked anyways because even if you get to 11 points real quick or 13 points real quick, if you've got, you know, two captain's picks and, you know, some guy who crawled his way onto the team through points at the end, like – if you got Yarmo at the back. Yeah. And so if you back load, yeah, then you fall behind early, but then you got Westwood and Sergio and I guess not Darren Clark, but other players like that right into the rescue. So, I mean, at some point, it doesn't matter how you get 14 and a half points. You just got to get 14 and a half points or in their case, 14, because they'd won in 06. So, so they allegedly like made him captain because he lived and worked in America for a year or for a decade. They're like, we want him captaining in for an American Ryder Cup. And then it was just kind of really isolated. I think go ahead. I don't think he was that familiar with Kentucky though. No. no. <laughs> like he lived in America, but he wasn't like he was, you know. So Westwood Westwood Sergio and Patty all failed to win a point. So like This was Pete uh, Patty too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Westy like Westy ripped on Faldo's decision to tell me wouldn't play him in the morning foursomes halfway through his <laughs> afternoon match on four ball. So he's telling him in the middle of the match so this isn't like simultaneous day. It's like Friday afternoon. He's like, oh, you're not playing tomorrow morning. Just let Westy win, the, like play out the match, you know? And Westy criticized him for that. Andy, do you have more on the Sergio blow up? I mean, that blew up. That blew so, up like six years later, right? Oh, Four, yeah. 14 uh, uh, at Glen Eagle. <laughs> yeah, so Faldo, Faldo called him useless at Valhalla. But this was during the broadcast of the Glen Eagles <laughs> yeah. one, right? 14? Yeah. Yeah, so this became a just a so this is this is like his late career drama. The 08 Ryder Cup so, thing was faster. So he called him useless, which obviously blew up. But then even in 2018, he uh, Garcia got a pot shot in on Feldo because he he passed Feldo for most points by a European oh, really? or, or he passed Feldo for a record. And he goes, yeah. this means a lot to me. I've passed some of my heroes today and Nick Faldo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when he called him useless on that 14 broadcast, I feel like Rory was tweeting at him. Everybody started Poulter. So many people came back. Like, 
Faldo's an idiot. He's useless. That was like a real drama in the middle of that Scotland Ryder Cup. The uh, I just uh, two. Oh, go on. I mean, it, that 08 team, the 08 team that he lost to was miserable team. Well, miserable Ryder Cup though, team. That feels like the start of the real like home course advantage course setup. Because even like 04 Oakland Hills was kind of thick, rough, major esque setup. 06, I think, was pretty neutral. But 2008 is really when they go, all right, no rough. We're going to set it up for bombers. We've got JB Holmes on the team. We've got a bunch of long hitters. Like, we're not having any rough. And then you follow with, uh, 2010 had pretty thick rough, and I just feel like that's when we kind of have this back and forth. Where in America they set it up with no rough, so that the guys can just wail away, and the U.S. can use its length advantage. And then uh, in Europe they do thick rough, and you know, kind of like lay golf national. But I feel like this 08 was really kind of the start of that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Any other like post career things? He's got a design business, as Andy's alluded to. You know, he's created these like the '96. He launched the Faldo series to provide opportunities for young young golfers. You know, graduates that are Rory Yanni Sen. Um, he's got like the Faldo Golf Institute started in '97. He's trying to like you know be a Norman esque type businessman. Um, and then when was he? He was knighted in uh, what was it? 2009 i believe yeah night bachelor in 2009 birthday honors for his services to golf so he became sir nick in 09 i think that's right anything else on uh before we just do a quick legacy wrap up no no going once going no. twice all right uh i feel like this was a good one i don't know if we gave we might have given short shrift to his like earliest days on the european tour but that's part three that was two days ago just, I think a lot of it was in the Lyle spotlight too. A lot of good Faldo stuff, but I thought this was a pretty good, pretty good encapsulation of Faldo. What made him tick? Legacy yeah. stuff. Legacy. So, uh, greatest golfer of his generation. Define generation. What does that mean? I mean, you look at the majors. He won twice as many as the next closest player. Does, Seve- doesn't he overlap? Doesn't he overlap a lot? I guess Watson's older but i feel like he overlaps from like that 77 to 96 he overlaps with with watson a lot a little bit i think watson's a, a generate i i think you have to put him into the generation ahead of because when when faldo's you know early 30s watson's late 40s right mm-hmm. um, uh, Watson is eight years older i guess but eight, it just feels like uh, watson watson started earlier uh, but he is eight years older. He did start earlier, but he won his first major in 75. Faldo bursts on the scene at 76. So, or turns pro at 76. Sorry. So I think you're right. I think Faldo's, or sorry, Watson's a generation older. I mean, so Seve, Seve won five, but all of his kind of came really before Watson or before Faldo, um, even though they're the same age. I think, I think he's got to be considered, you know, the best of his generation. I think right or I, it's hard to say with Sevy Sevy being the same age. Just to confirm, because we were stumbling all over the place, I've been reading while you guys are talking about legacy. This is his marital legacy. Just the Swiss PR agent, he broke up with her. Then he okay. um, he uh, he did get married again. Had another daughter, Emma Scarlett, in 03, and then he got divorced from that other woman in 06, and now he has another girlfriend. So it's three marriage, three divorces. He lives in Ponte Vedra. I should have had him over for the taping of the pod. All right. Uh, so back to legacy stuff. That That is part of his legacy, for sure. 
Um, I do you think it's not fully kind of appreciated or like now for us, for a lot of us, I mean, whatever his last major, I mean, 96, Sean, you just started, talked about how it was like your first real memory uh, of yeah, golf. I think for a lot of us, I think it's the broadcasting. Our, we know him as like the broadcaster, right? Yeah. And we think of 96, but we think of Norman losing the six shot lead. So you don't think of it as, yeah. you, know, you think of it as Norman losing it, not Faldo winning it. And if that's your main Faldo memory, which it is for me, then you don't give him the credit he's due. So I does. I wonder if our like relationship with him as the broadcaster sort of shadow, not overshadows, but certainly kind of dilutes his greatness as a player. What we understand or remember him as a player. Yeah, speaking on legacy, I think his relationship with Ledbetter uh, tr- transformed the role of instruction. How I mean, so? that was like kind of the first teardown rebuild. What he okay. did with Ledbetter, gotcha. uh, I think that was. That made coaches, I think, much more prevalent on the PGA Tour as far as like going to events and, you know, doing intensive swing changes when necessary. You know, like Nicholas and Jack Grout, like Jack Grout came to events, but they weren't changing things. You know, he usually wasn't even on the range. He was just there, but behind the ropes. Uh, You know, guys had coaches back home, usually their guy from their childhood. But the Faldo Ledbetter thing was, I think, more the start of like, the video camera and like the super coach. So it was like Ledbetter, uh, Butch Harmon, those kinds of guys with video cameras on the range, you know, possibly making big changes, doing big rebuilds, getting more technical. So I think that uh, the Faldo Ledbetter relationship led to a change in, in that sense and in, in the relationship of the instructor and the PGA tour player. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, it was, I think it was the rise obviously the instructor being kind of a, a big part of the, the team. Yeah. The celebrity instructor. Exa- yeah. Exactly. And I think one of the other things I think about is how, how insular, like the guys that tend to get like that we've seen. So tiger, obviously very insular and he won a lot. VJ was very insular and he won a lot. And there's like a, almost like a dynamic, I think, we have a few gregarious, like, you know, a- extroverted stars, but a lot of them are introverted. Yeah. To get to the very top, I feel like, intro- in, you know, it, being introverted is is a asset. Almost. Well, this, so we talked about this uh, with a few others, like not uh, like other guys not doing well at team sports. And that's how they became great at golf and things like that. But especially when you want to go another level, like you can't even be a popular person in the locker room let alone just on the course. And I just, yeah, and I think I'll never forget like the, the reading about Faldo, like would much rather just have room service on his balcony of his hotel than ever, ever like be seen in the bar or a restaurant with another player on tour. When you see it in other sports and in other industries, even like it's very hard to have both professional and personal success. Like if you're going to have like personal or sorry, professional success, the level of Nick Faldo, like be the best in the world in your industry. Like mm-hmm. there's usually a uh, price to pay uh, in the other aspects of your life. Like you don't come to conquer the world in your industry without uh, kind of like that metaphor he used earlier. Like you're basically at the bow of the ship and there's a bunch of waves in your wake. Like it's just, it's not possible to do both. I don't think. So he was ranked as I think in one ranking, like the 18th best player of all time, you know, he's, does it feel like he should have had like the career slam or more, more than six? I mean, uh, a few of those were 
quote unquote handed to him, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it almost feels like a guy that could have had, you know, or should have had double digit majors and maybe all four. Well, I do think he would get more respect if he had traded one of the other majors for a win in in a different major. So if he'd won three of the four majors versus, I don't want to say just two of the majors, but you know, winning two, winning three of the the four majors is a bigger deal than, and again, I would just say like his presence in our current lives as a broadcaster sort of, I don't know. It, it diminishes him. Yeah. We don't look back much. Uh, like we, we don't recall, we recall him in the current present as opposed to like the fondness of, for like how dominant he was as a golfer. It's, it's interesting like to think about how players legacies are impacted by what they do after golf, whether they go, they kind of ride off into the sunset without, you know, any sort of announcing or they, they kind of disappear from the game. And, and those that disappear from the game, like we see it on a, on a really interesting scale with like Anthony Kim is almost sensationalized because we lost him. Like, you know, and versus the people that stay present and stay top of mind via broadcasting or talking like their career accomplishments get diminished versus the guys that just disappear from the game, I think get remembered better. Also, I think it doesn't help him that, you know, in his own country, the media didn't portray him well. And then in this country, in the United States, like he didn't win all that often. He won the three masters uh, and two other, three other titles, three uh, other tour events, which, so I think, People just, you know, it wasn't the global, you know, you didn't have Golf Channel in the 80s. He didn't have have the global success as Norman or the brand success. Well, that, and but also then in this country, like he's winning events all over the world, but like they're not televised. They're not on Golf Channel. They're not getting covered on Golf Central. Like they're not making it in the newspaper even. Uh, So I think he probably is underrated in this country because most of his wins were outside of this country. And then in his own country, he may be underrated. Uh, because of how it was portrayed in the press. I mean, there was a headline in 2000 even that asked, is this the most unpopular man in sport? Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, I he, I think he, in a way, he's kind of got a little bit of a Brooksy in him where he didn't win a lot, like as much as you would expect somebody that won so many majors. But, you know, he kind of put all of his energy, like the majors were a different, beast for him than the regular events all right let's wrap it up andy he's in your hall of fame correct uh, oh yeah <laughs> he's Player. in that he's in that second tier second tier so you got we well, have the first tier i think you put vj no no vj's oh. in the same tier okay. i think right. May, he all might right. be ahead of me i How i think like I, I don't know yet we haven't we haven't gotten through everybody we've not done anyone first tier yeah have we I think okay. I think when you look first here, there's obviously like Tiger, but I mean that ten year run for for Faldo is about as good as as it gets. So better than player of the generation. You're you're putting him ahead of Norman. Putting him ahead of who who else would there be? Norman Nick. Norman Price would Nick be Price. Another. Yeah, I think Seve would be the one that would uh, would him and Seve kind of stand, but they didn't. Their their peaks didn't really overlap. No. Not really. It's like what what Clayton said. Seve's best golf was his earliest golf. 15, 16. Never saw him, according to his brother. Uh, Okay, anything else, Sean? No, I think that covers it. He's definitely in my Hall of Fame. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you for giving us your time, for reading a book, for this silly little podcast. Uh, appreciate it. What's Anytime. your Twitter handle? PGA Tour S Martin. Yeah, some some say PGA Tour Smartin S Martin. They both lead you to the same place. Okay. Well, hope you guys enjoyed this one. Faldo's like, I think the only one that'll be two parts. Maybe Sevy. We might have another guest for Sevy because he's so massive. Uh, buy that autobiography now. Smart. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so thank you guys. Uh, and we will be back with you on uh, Monday. Thanks, guys. What's the runtime on this thing? Uh, 120. <laughs> I mean, we vamped at the end. We did. Which I thought we had runway to do. We didn't even get into his Adams Golf Clubs at the 2000 U.S. Open, where he finished seventh, and John Ray or Johnny Ray Houston finished fourth. Now, the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. Yeah!